Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science here on 3RRR. We've got some big guests coming in today. In the studio with me already, though, is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are we going? Good. It feels like it's been a while since I know, I've seen you. I know, I know. I think it's been a couple of months because I think the, uh, the PhDs in 20, oh. 20 PhDs in 20 Kicked you out for that, yeah, did you I? Did. You <laughs> <me> <laughs> out. So, but I feel, will forgive you one day, but, but they were a yeah. great bunch. It was but amazing. But to be fair, I replaced you with 20 you people. Did. Yeah. That's what it yeah. took. Yeah. Yeah. So well, you should you feel know. You know, at least somewhat <laughs> satisfied by, by that ratio, I think. You can inflate my ego more through the There we go. We'll, we'll work on it. <laughs> Dr. Sarah Best is with us. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's good to have you back. You've been filling in for a lot of my team members who, you know, they're always in the Bahamas or the Caribbean somewhere. <laughs> Caribbean for the US listeners. <laughs> um, and that's my wife. <laughs> good job. But uh, yeah, it's good to, good to have you back. It's and a pleasure one, to be we've got here. one of your colleagues, a very uh, special person from Weehai, coming in a little bit later in the show. So you'll be able to, you know, really dish the dirt because you're working in the same building. Yeah, grill that crap out of her. Anyway. Uh, folks, we're going to start off with some news, though, and then we'll get into our guests. I do have a couple of announcements, important announcements, though. Uh, first up is the Monash Sensory Science Exhibition on Autoimmunity, which is coming up. And I, I heard about this. Uh, one of my old buddies sent me uh, some stuff around this, Professor J.B. Rostron from Monash University's Biomedical – sorry, Biomedicine Discovery Institute. I always say that wrong um, – but what they're doing is they've got this special program on that allows you to interact with the science in different ways. So let me just read some of this out. So discover the science of autoimmunity from leading scientists through accessible multi-sensory, multimodal art and exhibits, including displays by the Monash Assistive Technologies and Society. And they've got all these really cool things that you can go and feel and touch and hear. So if you're vision impaired, you can engage with the science in a way that you probably you know, haven't been able to in many places before. And I just it just sounds amazing. Um, Jamie's giving a keynote presentation. The event is on Friday the 30th of June from 8.45 a.m. until 2 p.m. And it's down in Clayton. Um, so I suggest the best way to get the details is to Google Monash Sensory Science Exhibition. And we'll put some of the links up on our Twitter feed as well. But they have all sorts of things going on there. But I just I like the idea of being able to um, have that sort of interactive experience. Some of the things, they've turned them into sounds. So mm-hmm. if you can't see them, you can hear some of the data. You can feel some of the data. I think that's just really exceptionally cool work. So the Monash Sensory Science Exhibition folks, uh, have a look at that. I'm going to hand it to Liv. She'll tweet it out for us and some details. Anyway, some... News, Ailey. Some science. Yeah. Get into the science for the day. Well, I've got three words for you. Groundwater. That's two. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> bye. <laughs> three phrases. Groundwater. Yeah, you're right. Sea level yeah, yeah. rise. That's three yeah. words. Jesus. <laughs> three phrases. Yeah, okay. Groundwater, sea level rise, and Earth's rotational pole. Oh, yeah. Okay. What do all those three have in common? I know that sounds like a bad joke. I feel like that's the start of a bad scientific joke. But... This 
is some really interesting news that's come out of Korea this week that's been published uh, in the publication Geophysical Research Letters. Right. And basically, we've known for a little while that Earth's rotational pole is related to where and how much water is in the ground, mm. right? So a lot of Earth's fresh water, a lot, much more that's on the surface is stored in aquifers, in, in you know, areas where it can get through pieces of mm. porous rock and whatnot. And we also have known since about 2016 that how that water is distributed tells us where Earth's rotational pole is. But this pole, this this rotational pole, has kind of been migrating, wandering for the past, you know, wanders all the time. But But it's been wandering quite a bit, a bit more than perhaps is expected over the last 20 or so years. And so what these scientists did was they had a look at the various factors that can go into migration of this pole because, you know, the pole migrates depending on where the mass is distributed, right? So things like glaciers as they melt, ice as it melts, blah, blah, blah. They have a look at groundwater redistribution. What's the biggest way that groundwater can be redistributed on planet Earth? Us. Us. That's right. We like to take it out of the ground. We like to use it, move it around, use it for irrigation. And so what these uh, scientists discovered was that they, they built some models, had a look at this groundwater redistribution. The Earth's rotational pole has migrated around 80 centimetres in the last 20-odd years. Right. Right? 78 of those centimetres are due to groundwater extraction by humans. How do they know that that, is what's, that redistribution is the main thing and not the, um, for example, melting of glaciers, uh, exactly. redistribution of ice and that, so forth? Because like, that seems to be like a far larger quantity of, of mass. Exactly me. right, exactly right. And I think it's about kind of where it's distributed to and everything like mm. that. But what they did was they included all that in their models. So right. they included glacier melt. They included um, other aspects of changes to the hydrological cycle. They moved... Uh, Included all of it. The only way that they could get their model to move everything the way it was hmm. um, observed was with and without the groundwater extraction. Right. And what the, the whole reason they did this was because they're really trying to quantify uh, how much groundwater contributes to sea level rise. Right. Which sounds strange, but you, we get you know sea level rise yeah, yeah. from melting of ice caps. We get sea level rise just because the water itself expands, right? Because yep. it's warmer. Um, But we also get sea level rise from moving water from the ground to the surface of the earth. And so they were trying to quantify that because nobody's been able to give it some some top numbers, some good numbers. And so by doing that, by by looking at the change to the rotation of earth related to groundwater extraction, first of all, that, so this, this, this movement of the pole was kind of an unexpected answer that they got from it mm. because they were just trying to quantify sea level rise. And then they went, oh, hang on a second. Actually, pretty much all of the movement in the last 20 years can be explained by groundwater wow. alone. Like the other bits mattered, but they kind of cancelled each other out. It was really the groundwater that made the biggest difference. Mm. And so what they also found from this paper um, that's, you know, kind of the secondary thing that's coming out in the media release, but they also found that groundwater extraction seems to have contributed around six millimetres of sea level rise in the last 20-odd years. That's not an insignificant amount. It's not. It's quite a lot. That's Because the groundwater is in, uh, I mean, the best way I like to think of it is kind of in buckets. That's right. Yeah, it's not connected to no. the sea. No. It's in these sort of confined That's areas. Right. And once you're emptying them out, mm-hmm. um, you know, you cause all sorts of problems. So they like, do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they do recharge. I mean, you know, this yeah. kind of natural cycle has been happening for it. But recharging these groundwater reservoirs takes a very 
very yeah. long time. And so yeah. once you extract them, I mean, places like Central California, I'm not sure right. if you've seen there, but they use a lot of groundwater. Oh, no, there's heaps left. Yeah. Problem is the entirety of Central California is sinking oh. and has sunk by about, in some places it's, places it's sunk by 10 plus metres. Oh. They've got, you know, there's some brilliant, have a, have a, have a look on the a search engine. on. Yeah. There's these fantastic, there's these fantastic uh, images of like fire hydrants that sit kind of 10, 20 metres, uh, 10 metres out of the earth because wow. the ground has sunk that much. Uh, because of groundwater extraction in, in uh, places, some places in central California, because they use so much groundwater. It's a huge agricultural area. Yeah. Um, it feeds pretty much half Everyone. the United yeah. States. Yeah. And uh, they've extracted so much groundwater that the ground has sunk. That's a disturbing so, yeah. thought. That's a, that's a disturbing <laughs> thought. Wow. But anyway, so look. Yeah. Rotational changes to rotation of the earth, you can yeah. quantify how much water's moving around. It's pretty who cool. Says, who says we can't affect the planet? <laughs> Never. It's only 80 centimetres, surely. That Humans are such a virus. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Sarah, what do you got for us? I'm changing tack a bit to biomedical engineering. Ooh. And <laughs> We're going to engineer some new, less destructive people? Maybe we can raise the groundwater. Yeah. Um, so this group from China who published this really interesting article in Science Advances this week wanted to develop an improved way of getting topical ointments that we'd normally put on our skin just below the skin surface, mm -hmm. so a microneedle patch. And they got inspiration from an animal. And I don't know if any animals immediately come to mind for you, like a mosquito or... That can get below the skin like yeah. that? Oh, no, I hate being Oh, now like I'm thinking anything. about... I'm, I'm now thinking leeches. about, like, horrible burrowing, like, parasites <laughs> yeah. or something Ticks, disgusting. Leeches. It's a lot of things that can bite you. <laughs> yeah. But they got inspiration from the blue-ringed octopus. Oh, okay. A, yeah, a yeah. completely different uh, field of animal that you would have imagined. Well, they're aliens. We all know that. <laughs> <laughs> but this uh, was really interesting. So they took two parts of the blue-ringed octopus that um, they could bring to this microneedle patch... The first is the fact that the octopus can grab things and hold on to its prey mm. in water. Right, yep. Um, which which is, is hard. Yeah, 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 it's very hard. And yep. if, if anyone's put on a Band-Aid and then had a shower, you know that things will come off in water pretty easily, which isn't great for a, a microneedle patch. Yeah, remember that when you go to the public pool, people. I'm <laughs> just saying. I'm just saying. Always. I don't like swimming into other people's beds. <laughs> Take them off before you get in. They're not gonna. They're not gonna stay on. Or use the octopus uh, suckers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other part of uh, the octopus that they they took for this is the the fact that it grabs its prey and then injects it with venom with right. many little teeth. Right. And it initially um, injects a large volume of venom. And then there's a hydrophilic change in the teeth and then it slowly gives the venom over time so that there's mm. this time factor that's involved in the delivery of venom. So they've taken these two aspects and generated these patches that you can put onto your skin and on really bendy regions of skin as right, well, okay. right on the, yep. the finger, finger and the ear and everything. And um, you can put it on an ulcer or um, a tumour that's just below the skin, right. like a melanoma. And the the needles you can load with whatever drugs you need, and it will deliver that initial um, high concentration of treatment. Yep. And then slowly over time, it continues treatment as well. Wow. And we, but when you say needles, like when I when I hear needle, I'm like, ouch. But we're not talking <laughs> about that, are we? We're talking about you barely. Would you feel that? 
like you would a normal needle? They're, they're very small, They're right? very thin. So they've used this polymer called hydrogel, um, which is uh, really thin, and hopefully you don't feel it because I imagine a patch of 100 needles would hurt a lot more than one injection. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I think the distribution and the size of the needle really will just make it um, less abrasive. Mm. And so they test it in a few different models, like um, healing of an ulcer and um, in um, keratinous tumours as well, delivering chemotherapy mm. directly to the tumour. Right. And they had some really exciting responses. So I'm really interested to see where this will go in the future. Yeah, I think anything that moves away from what is, what, 200-year-old technology. You know I mean? Normal, normal syringes and needles are really old technology. And I know we've got them smaller, but every now and then you still get an injection of something that's fairly viscous. Mm. And it's the viscosity that hurts, right, more than yeah. the, the needle itself. Like, you know, that's that's always the, the nasty part. If they can get all that sorted so that – I mean, we've got to get back to the hypersprays from Star Trek, you know, so <laughs> – and that's it, right? That's where I want to be. But in the interim, while we're working on that, hard – you know, we'll know, get to patches. We'll get to patches. <laughs> I think that could be a good way to go. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. All right. Uh, before we go to a break, folks, I wanted to announce um, we do have a double pass available via the Triple R website. Uh, Family Jams Fest. Bring the best of Melbourne's incredible music scene to kids and their elders is coming up at the Northcote Theatre on Sunday, July 2nd from 2pm to 5pm. It's going to feature some really cool people like uh, Soul Funk Superstars cooking on three burners, a whole lot more. Um, Nice price tickets on sale now from com, and there is one double pass available, um, which is available to subscribers only. Um, if you're a subscriber and you'd like a chance to head along to this particular event, uh, get on to rrr.org.au to enter the competition, and uh, there's a double pass to be given away there. So that's the Family Jams Fest. Google it. Good stuff. We're going to take a break for some music, and we come back, we will have our first guest on from Monash University. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Dr. Amy Liu. Amy is a postdoctoral associate at part of Monash University and in Securing Antarctic's Environmental Future Safe. I think that's – is that what you guys call it, Amy? Yes, yeah. safe. Everyone just calls it safe. Yeah. We want yeah, it to be correct. safe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not safe, though, is it? No. <laughs> it's, it's far from safe. Now, you've uh, you've just come back from Macquarie Island. We had one of your colleagues on uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Macquarie Island's about uh, halfway between Australia and Antarctica, right? It's, yeah, it's about 100 and uh, 1,500 kilometres from Tasmania. Yeah, yeah, so – and boat ride – Smooth sailing, just hanging out on the deck. Yeah, just six meters wave, <laughs> rolling <laughs> in the ship. Yeah, was there a lot of? Was there a lot of? I'll use the term refunding of, um, of previously consumed items while you're on the boat. Like, were people just throwing up left, right, and center, or you're no, all okay? No, actually, we did pretty well. 
<laughs> yeah, I expected myself to be throwing up left, right, and center. And didn't happen? No, no, it didn't happen. That's impressive. I love and that. we ate a lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been fishing out on Portfield Bay for just five hours on the charter I go out there. And some people, two hours in, they're going for it. And yep. I think you guys going all the way down there to Macquarie Island and managing it is pretty impressive. In winter, yeah. no less. Like, yeah. you know, usually people make these trips kind of in summer because it's nicer. Yeah, a little calmer. Yeah, yeah. you know, the resupply oh, impressive. Yeah, push back. It's amazing. It's such yeah. and it's such a remote place. And one of the things I learned from your colleague a few weeks back is there's no trees there. No, so it's all shrubby, low laying vegetation. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that's quite. That must be quite an amazing sort of desolate, sort of not desolate, but you know, like um, different environment to get to uh, from what we normally perceive of as island sort of environments. Yeah. Yeah, so I think because of the wind, the extreme condition, mm. um, all the vegetation just adapted to be low laying. Yeah, keep your head down. Right. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what we did as well when we yeah, were I, sampling I, for field work. Yeah, keep it low. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> now you you've been looking at something there that you know we can't talk too much about, but uh, cryptic species. What do we mean by cryptic species? So we consider um, species to be cryptic. Um, two or more species considered to be cryptic when we can't recognize them based on superficial morphological characters. Right. Yeah. But often we use DNA um, techniques, and that's how we uncover cryptic species diversity. And they're kind of like the wild card for biodiversity. They are totally unexpected but have such an impact to the overall biodiversity. Right. So, so in, in that sense, you're talking about things. You, you go down there and you're looking at it. It might be a type of moss or something or other, and, and you just can't identify it by its its look and appearance. Some of them, yes. Um, so, for example, there's a species of um, springtails. Hmm. We thought it was under one species name, but then when they did molecular work, they actually discovered it's three different species. Right. Yeah. So we can't protect what we don't know, right? Yep. Um, yeah, that's why it's important to know what species we're dealing with um, in terms of conservation strategies. Mm. And do you have a feeling for what percentage of the species, maybe just the island, maybe the whole Earth um, out there that is part of this cryptic species group? I have. I can't put a figure to it. Is it? Um, but less, yeah. Yeah, like, but would it be like you know point zero zero one percent? Are we talking maybe like five to ten percent? Is it kind of is is it a appreciable number? Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so when you're down on Macquarie Island and you're wandering around or maybe crawling around because you're keeping a low profile because of the conditions, <laughs> um, like, how, how long does it take you to find some of these? You know, before you come across something that falls into this category. Um, it takes. Let's focus on springtails. So yeah, it yeah. takes about. Less than a minute if you have your eye in it. Um, so we just use a pooter, like an expirator, and mm-hmm. just lay flat on the ground and your face in the bush, yeah. in the soil, um, up close and personal. And then you just start sucking up the bugs. Often when you move the litter a bit, they come out. You can see them jump. Right. Yeah. And I have to ask, that when you say sucking up the bugs and you did the straw... <laughs> There is there has to be a process here so that they don't end up in your mouth. Can you describe how this works? So the aspirator has got a long tube and then so two tubes coming out of a container. So one tube, the tube that you suck on, has a mesh ah, yeah. 
yeah, <laughs> blocking you from eating the springtails and the bugs. Yeah. Yes. And, and what's a springtail exactly? So a springtail is um, there are is an arthropod. Yep. Um, they are very important to the nutrients recycling in the ecosystem, and a lot of people haven't heard about them is because they're so small. Mm-hmm. Um, so their function is similar to earthworms. Okay. We see earthworms all the time because they. Um, easy to see. Mm. Um, springtails it ranges from about zero point no like more. They're all less than ten millimeters. Okay. So the species that I was looking for on Macquarie, it was zero point six millimeters. Zero point six millimeters. Yeah. Wow, that's we're getting pretty small there. So you're on the whole island, and someone. I mean, that's a bit sadistic to send a researcher out and say, okay. It's a big island, but uh, what you're looking for is 0.6 millimetres. Good luck. Here's a nest breeder. So, I mean, in that sense, I know the bugs are tiny, right? But yeah. they must make up a pretty big proportion of the soil, the upper part of the soil column anyway, like at the surface. I mean, so you were saying that their role is really to kind of, you know, break down all this stuff and, and be recyclers, right? I yeah. mean, um, so so in that sense... My question is kind of around these cryptic species versus I'm assuming there are springtails everywhere else as well in our gardens and, and things like yeah. that. So so what is the role of these cryptic species as opposed to the other species? Or is it that you just haven't been able to categorise these new types of yeah. species and, and so to really understand how they function in the ecosystem, you need to mm. find yes. them? Yes, that's very correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, and then you get to know the ecology. And often, after you discover using molecular techniques, after you discover the cryptic species, um, if you look closely morphologically, you can actually see some of some sort of difference, or their role in the ecosystem might be slightly different to the species that you thought they belong to. Mm. And so yeah. how, how important are those types of species like springtails worldwide as opposed to, say, earthworms or something oh, like that? Oh, they are extremely important. They occur almost everywhere on Earth. Um, yeah, I, do, I don't think there's any ecosystem that they're not in. Mm. Um, yeah, and they make up a large proportion of terrestrial arthropods. Yeah, it, that's fascinating. What I'm wondering there is how... How are they like some of the other early warning species that we've seen big problems with? So frogs, as a, as a really good example, are all over the world. We know they're in trouble and changes in environmental conditions are affecting them really severely at the moment. With these particular little critters, are they, you know, are they like the, I don't know, the, the, some of the beetles of the world, they're going to be fine, or are they one of these species that is, on, is teetering on the edge with changing climate? Yeah, they are definitely highly impacted by the mm. by climate change. Um, they are often used to certain conditions like moist and humid conditions, and with the climate drying over over the years, they are highly impacted. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you you looked on Macquarie Island, right? Yeah. But you you know you're also in securing Antarctica's environmental future. So, I mean, is the idea here that there are some down in Antarctica as well? And as we see, kind of, at least around the margins, you know, melting Antarctic Peninsula and stuff like that. How would that go about changing the ecosystems and environments of these types of the? I mean, I'm assuming there are springtails in Antarctica, are there? Or yeah. yeah, yeah. So, for example. Um, they are 
they live in the plant. Mm -hmm. So if the native plant species on the island starting to go because of climate change, that will affect them because they often live in the litter and in the soil, highly sheltered by the climate. Um, yeah, so studies have found that they are um, they are negatively impacted by the increasing of temperature and decreasing humidity. Yeah, it's geez, it's a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because uh, if we don't, as you say, if we don't know what's what some of these species are or what their role is, and we assume it's the role of another similar species, yeah. then we can get our strategy really wrong with regards to how to protect them, and and that's going to be bad. Um, yeah. You going back to Macquarie? Uh, not anytime soon. <laughs> it's not in my diary. <laughs> not in your diary. Have you been down to Antarctica? Or is no, that was yeah. my first time. Yeah. yeah. So, Good. amazing experience. Yeah. 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 Cold. Yeah, yeah, harder than I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Amy, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. It's great to have you and some of your colleagues on from um, from the this particular group that's protecting aspects or you know attempting to protect aspects of Antarctica and I guess the world in that sense. But um, interesting to hear about these cryptic species. I had not heard about this before, so this is wild stuff. Thanks so much for being our guest. Thank you so much, folks. Dr. Amy Liu is part of securing Antarctica's environmental future at Monash University. We're going to take a very short break and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 RRR. Yeah, welcome back, people. It was a quick break. Didn't even have time for my usual bathroom. I never go to the bathroom during the show, let it be known. <laughs> Always before. Uh, in the studio with us now is Associate Professor Misty Jenkins. Uh, she just got herself an AO. I don't know, we'll work out what that stands for later. It's important. <laughs> Misty is from, from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, where she is an MHNMRC Fellow and Laboratory Head of the Immunology Division and leads the immunotherapy program with um, regards to the Brain Cancer Centre. Misty Welcome back after a long time to Triple R. Oh, Dr. Shane, it's such a pleasure to be back here. And thank you for all you do for bringing science out to our community. It's always a thrill to come and participate in a tiny, tiny way. Well, you're welcome. I got nothing else on Sunday. Yeah. So, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the only place I wanted. Uh, now, we've got so many things to talk to you about, but I, I want to start off a bit um, because you, you just got awarded an AO. So just give our audience a context for that because this is a huge, a huge accolade. It is. It's very humbling. It's one of the high. It's you know, one of the highest civilian honours that you can receive, mm. an Order of Australia um, nomination. And so I was awarded an officer of the Order of Australia. I had to Google this myself because there's a whole ranking and a hierarchy to these things. And I, I didn't really understand, you know, how, how that worked. But um, in the background, there have been a lot of individuals, I think, over a while. that you, So any Australian can nominate another Australian. And so I was awarded uh, on the King's birthday weekend with three citations for distinguished mm. service to medical science, support of women in STEM and to the Indigenous community. And so I feel like this is a gong for them and all of the organisations I've worked with over many years. Yeah, and look, congratulations, because you have, I mean, for some of us who've watched you, you know, often from afar, but, you know, we're not working in the same institution, we've seen that work and seen how it affects people around you, and it is not an insignificant um, part of what you do, which is not your core job. I think that's the key, right? That's right. And, I, you know, I think you, you don't get these sort of awards for, for doing your job. It's for the the going above and beyond. And, and sometimes I think, you know, we 
we as scientists, you know, have to question that, that if, we put, if I'd put all my time mm. and energy into cancer cures, would I be further along? But I, I feel like, you know, it's also really important that we, um, we as scientists play a role in science communication, like what you do, Dr Shane, uh, and bringing up, you know, providing role models for others coming behind us and supporting the sector at large in a variety yeah. of different ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I used to, you know, I, I was from physics, so, you know, the idea of you put the food under the door and the yeah. science would come out <laughs> right. from certain offices, I think probably <laughs> is true. But, um, but the reality is if you're not connected and part of the community in which you serve, then your value is lower in my view. That's right. I think it's really easy to become institutionalised and insular mm. when you're in your white lab coat in the lab. But, you know, I think, you know, this, the public's really interested in what we're doing. And I think if, you know, those of us that are willing to open the doors and invite people in and demystify what science research is all about and get people excited about it, mm. young and old from all walks of life, um, from rural Australia through to our, you know, kids in our cities, uh, we'll all be better off as a result, you know, by raising the scientific literacy of the public. That's yeah. how, you know, decisions get made and that's how funding gets distributed. And so, you know, it's really important that we all play a role as scientists. Yep, 100%. Now, let's go. We've got a bit of time today. So I wanted to explore a bit about your background because we haven't talked about that on the show before. But you started off in Ballarat. I did. So shout out to all my regional friends and family out there from the rat hello yeah. yes absolutely and i think you know for me sort of coming through high school my parents like many of their generation left mm. school at the age of 13 14 and so going to university seemed quite out of reach yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah go, and go. i think it was really just from you know great teachers that inspired me um to go on and, and consider a university path pathway so you know it's our science teachers do such an amazing job don't they mm. and what did that mean for your family like you know i i think a lot of people don't have a good understanding of when you come from a family where education you know especially tertiary education but even just completing high school education is not a thing absolutely um, there's a generational shift and it's a seismic event you know when someone does something else i think we take for granted you know those of us sort of those growing up in cities with families that can you know where you can live at home and you can go mm. to university and if you work hard you have a roof over your head and food on your plate but it's not the case for a lot of regional and rural australia that have to leave their homes and that means going and moving and paying rent and being 18 and on your own and that was certainly the case for me so I think my parents were terrified you know <laughs> we can't afford to pay we can't afford to help you with that and yeah. so that means you know getting part-time jobs and waitressing tables at night and studying during the day and and that was just the reality I thought everyone did that Dr Shane yeah well I, you know I did but I didn't come from real estate <laughs> but I came from the, the west of Melbourne but did, so I learned more working in retail than I think Absolutely. I did at the uni yes, <laughs> Does that your experience like 100 percent all of those you know soft skills about communication yeah. and you know, dealing with, you know, pesky customers and, you know, <laughs> absolutely turning up, being on time, um, you know, reporting to a boss. These are all skills that, you know, and now I'm recruiting. I, re I, I now employ people and it's one of the things I look for on their CV and their resume. Is retail is, experience? Well, yeah. And, and not just, honestly, not just about how good their marks are at university, yeah. but also have they had that life experience? Have they had to turn up to a job? And if you're working at Macca's or Boost Juice, that's fact. I want to see that on your CV as well yeah. as having a great academic track record. Yeah, it's quite funny, isn't it? Because I think a, a lot of the time we think I will hide that away that yes. I worked in these these service roles but actually if you've worked in them for long enough and you know I, I worked in those roles since I was like 12 and you learn how to interact with people in a different way to what you would otherwise learn in the you know the the sort of ivory towers of, of the university spaces and it does it does teach you that you know 
one thing I learned was everyone can contribute and everyone has different skill sets and everyone has something to offer. And I think it, it, you know, it's not something that I learned in my educational programs. It's something I learned on the street. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think there is a stereotype of being a scientist that is a white coat squirreling away in a laboratory, <laughs> you know, with crazy hair, usually a bald man with spectacles or something like that. And, and you know, and, 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 but like our labs are actually full of young, dynamic people and you yeah. need skills like communication. You need to be, you know, really creative and think outside the box yeah. to solve complex problems. And so, you know, all of those sort of skills are, are just as important. <laughs> you were looking at me when you said that. <laughs> I wasn't looking at you. I was actually picturing Einstein. Because I think a lot of young kids think about Einstein when they're asked to do an essay on a scientist. It's like the first iconic image that yeah, comes yeah. to mind, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Now, so um, so you left Ballarat. What came next? So I left Ballarat. I went to the University of Melbourne, you know, turned 18, waited tables, all of that, uh, did a science degree, uh, and then did a, a PhD with uh, with Nobel laureate Peter Doherty and Stephen mm, yeah, Turner. And I, yeah. and I said, I don't know anything about immunology, but I'm really, really keen to learn. And they collectively, that amazing team, took me under their wing and trained me there for the next four years. Um, and that was just an incredible experience. And then I had a fairly, fairly linear academic path. I went, uh, did an overseas postdoc uh, after that for four, four and a half years in the UK. Went to Oxford and Cambridge. Hmm. Wasn't sure who to go for in the boat race at the end of that. <laughs> Loved both of the places. And that was a, you know, incredible for a girl, as you say, for a girl from Ballarat to all of a sudden be a, a fellow at uh, a Cambridge college and, you know, Prince Philip would come for tea and the Archbishop of Canterbury would come for dinner on Friday nights and we'd be debating theology. And it was just... a mind-blowing experience to be exposed to all of these people from all around the world from such different disciplines and countries and cultures and um it really um you know really made me grow up a lot i feel like i should have dressed a little bit better for this conversation (laughs) (laughs) ailey why are you shaking your head so good (laughs) people can't see me at home but i'm in my uh comfy clothes yeah this is the beauty of radio well, until someone comes in, they start taking photos, uh, and then it all falls away and you get in trouble. So, so you came back here, and now you're at the Walter Eliza Hall Institute, um, which is, uh, you know, that's game-changing, game-changing work being done there in immunotherapy. Absolutely, yeah. I came back from the UK to Peter Mac for five years with Joe Trapani, which was, and that was mm. really where I think I just fell in love with immunotherapy. And this was, of course, at a time when it was still fairly new, Dr. Shane, because, yeah. you know, for, for decades, um, I think we had some, it was a very niche area. We had some inkling we could, that in, the immune response was important in cancer. And I, for many years, I'd studied how our specialised white blood cells kill uh, virus-infected cells and cancer cells and understanding that mechanism um, and really now looking at how we can engineer these cells in the treatment of cancer. And so when I started my lab at the Weihai, um, the, it was actually a very serendipitous conversation with a friend. And she said, so what disease do you work on? And I mm. said, well, I don't really work on a disease. I, I look at how these T cells kill cancer cells. And she said, and she was a neurosurgeon at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. And she said to me, well, I'm sick of telling my patients they're going to die. And someone needs to do something about that. No pressure. And that's what I thought. So, yeah. no, and I was sort of sipping our coffee and I sort of went away and I read a few papers and I realised there'd only been one paper published where um, a group had used CAR T-cells in, in, against brain cancer. And I thought that was it. That's this is. Mm. Um, I've always been an early adopter. So <laughs> <laughs> that's very early. I, we set ourselves the ambitious task to, you know, 
to start the lab and, and, and you know, start this whole new line of yeah. research in Australia. Because I remember, and we were talking about this briefly in the green room, but, um, you know, probably 25 years ago on the show, just starting to have conversations about the immune system and, it, and the possibility of using it to fight cancer. And I remember at the time saying, you know, Immunotherapy is going to be a big thing, maybe in decades. Um, neuroscience is going to be transformed, which which we've seen mm. that, especially with imaging, like the way we approach neuroscience now is completely different to what it was two or three decades ago, even just a decade ago. And, you know, there's a few other things I just threw in the mix just in, in case they came true, you know, I'd like be a prophet, you know, kind of thing. But <laughs> no, uh, none of those came true. No, actually all of them, you know, like climate might be important to think about. But but the the whole thing around the immune system is fascinating to me because I, the way I've often thought about it is if if I get cancer, it's mm-hmm. it's actually, in, in a sense, the immune system stopped stopping me from getting cancer because I've always thought we get cancers all the time in our body. That's right. And our immune system cleans them up, right? And then all of a sudden we get to a point for some reason where that process starts to fail. Is that, is that a good characterization? That's a perfect characterization, and in fact, this takes us on a bit of a history lesson because you're right. It's possible that I've had cancer in my lifetime and never mm. known about it right. because my immune system has recognized it and destroyed it, right? Mm. It's like a foreign enemy. But of course, our immune systems have evolved to keep us, um, to keep us safe from infections and cancer and disease. Um, and so, in fact, dating back to our own McFarlane Burnett, who was the director of Weehigh back in the uh, 40s, 50s-ish, yep. uh, and, and he actually won, ended up winning the Nobel Prize for his groundbreaking theory that our immune system has evolved to keep us safe from pathogens. And he then um, evolved that theory to say that our immune system has also evolved to keep us free from cancer. Mm. But it took another 50 years for that to be formally demonstrated. Right. Actually, when mice lacking um, perforin and you know key effector molecules were shown to spontaneously um, develop lymphomas. And so, you know, really over the last you know 20 years, we've seen this absolute uh, explosion of. Um, of immunotherapy and the recognition that the immune system is important in recognizing and responding to cancer. And now in recent years, we're now manipulating it to do that. Yeah, it's wild. So, I mean, kind of going on to that idea of, you know, that type of research that you initiated, we might call it, you know, real blue sky research, you know, it's coming from fundamental kind of changing it's a game changer around this kind of stuff. And, and there's blue sky research happening all around the country. But, but recently we've also seen this kind of move away from this kind of funding towards blue sky research, a lot more funding for you know, industry-based stuff and this small incremental changes. I'm wondering, you know, given you were able to start that lab 20 years ago and you just spoke about, you know, in, in our history lesson, someone, you know, taking 50 years to come to the conclusion that... Where do you think we're sitting now in terms of science funding, in terms of how we move these big, you know, game-changing type Mm. um, scientific ideas, giving people the opportunity to open those labs? Do you think we are where we were 20 years ago? And if not, where do we need to be? Do we need to get back there? It's such a great question, and I think this balance of how we fund the sector in terms of those blue sky discovery based you know tackling the really big complex problems that are that do take large multidisciplinary teams take large investments of money in a long period of time versus those sort of um, priority led driven type projects that might have a, a more clinical or translational uh, and uh, and then those in between that sit on both spectrums that may be incremental and I think sort of that this is the big challenge for our uh, 
in Australia in general is that we lack a national scientific strategy to actually be making these large investments. So science is funded in Australia through two large, you know, three large mechanisms, so medical medical research through the NHMRC, the National Health and Medical Research Council, and the MRFF, uh, the, uh, the Medical Research Future Fund. And so the Future Fund is more priority-driven. This is a $20 billion fund set up by the federal government. Um, and uh, and so they, they complement they're supposed to complement each other. And, in fact, there's some white papers doing the rounds at the moment to look at how we might actually integrate them more effectively moving forward so that we can have a a defined strategy, so that we're not just funding incremental research. And we do need to make um, space and time and have programs and funding models for those large blue-sky projects like you talked about, which are so so critical. It's an interesting uh, mix, isn't it? Because in in days gone by, you would fund the person for their genius mm. and say, you know, look, Misty, we're just going to give you a couple of million bucks, go and do something special. Yeah. Whereas now you have to demonstrate you've pretty much already done the work before you started mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it does become very incremental. So if you had some wacky idea, so, you know, you and I were talking in the green room about immunotherapy to deal with endometriosis. Yeah. If you went and put that in a grant application, you would get a very, very firm and polite no at mm-hmm. the moment because there's, there's nothing, right? There's mm-hmm. nothing out there. And yet, and yet we know it's an inflammatory condition. Mm-hmm. We know the immune system's involved. We know it cycles month to month. We know all these things which would, you know, maybe for someone like yourself would say, okay, maybe we should have a look at how the immune system can be used to treat this rather than just surgery. But we wouldn't get very far, would we? No, that's right. And this is the way our system is set up, that you have to have a proven evidence track record in something before you can get funding. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg scenario mm. here. And in fact, you're, um, when I started my lab, I didn't know, I didn't have a history of working in brain cancer. Yeah. I didn't have publications proving that I, that I knew a lot about brain cancer. And so I actually funded those first few years of my lab, I funded mainly through philanthropy. Yeah, and it was through you know, philanthropic organisations that said this is desperately needed and we're behind you, you know, Isabella and Marcus and Dawes and Carrie's Beginning to Brain Cancer, all of these organisations helped establish this lab and now we can get to the point where we can get those big government grants because we can show we can do the work. But you're right, and, and in some of those diseases like endometriosis, you know, and, um, and also autoimmunity, you know, these are mm. all sorts of diseases that we will be able to use the immune system to engineer and improve therapies and develop a whole new... Uh, line of research yeah. um, and, and, and treatment paradigm, actually. Now, because I've got you, I, I've got a lot of questions I normally have for cancer people, and Sarah's been pretty good at answering most of them, actually, <laughs> but uh, let's go further. So typically there seems to be three sort of pathways for cancer therapy. There's surgery or ex, you know some sort of excision of, of tumours and yeah. so forth. There is um, chemotherapy, so using um, yeah, essentially toxins to kill the cancers first, but doing a fair bit of damage to the body in very, very difficult situation. And then the third is um, immunotherapy, that, that, that type of process. You talk about brain cancers. Um, obviously, the, second, well, the first one, very challenging because you can do a lot of damage when you're cutting into people's brains. The second one, I understand, is very problematic because getting across the blood-brain barrier is very challenging and a lot of chemotherapies just don't work in that sense. Where do we sit with immunotherapy and the brain? 
So coming back to that conversation I had with that neurosurgeon, Ruth Mitchell, when she, you know, she said, you need to work on brain cancer. She lobbied me hard and I always you know, credit her for that. The beauty of our immune system is actually unlike when we went through university and, uh, and learned in our textbooks that the brain was an immune privilege site, right. it has been completely debunked. So the beauty is that these immune cells, white blood cells, can get into your brain and deliver these personal li- living therapies in the form of what we call CAR T cells, which is a personalised immune therapy. So that's that's the first thing is that, you know, in, in particular, brain cancer is really amenable to um, cellular therapies. And you're right because, you know, going back to the history lesson, you know, for decades we only had surgery available. Um, and, in mm. fact, dating back to the ancient Egyptians. But, of course, that's become much more personalised and targeted now. And then around, um, you know, the first uh, – around 1900 – Pierre Marie Curie discovered radium could kill disease cells and yep. radiation was born and then chemotherapy, as you rightly said. And you're right, a lot of chemotherapies can't cross the, the blood-brain barrier, particularly in um, paediatric brain cancers, mm. which are not surgically operable. There's a particularly devastating uh, tumour that grows in the brain stem called diffuse midline glioma and the brainstem controls your breathing and your swallowing yep. so you can't surgically remove it um, and the chemotherapy just doesn't doesn't get in and doesn't work and it's pa- and it's completely universally fatal so you know generally after a diagnosis all of these kids are, are dead within a year it's quite shocking yeah uh, and so it's it's diseases like this now that we're starting to see some tumor regressions using immunotherapy which has been an absolute game changer yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see that over in Adelaide, they're um, they are putting together the new proton beam therapy yes. system over there. So for for people who don't know, you know, proton beams. God, I used these during my PhD days in physics, but it's a beam of protons, literally. Yes that is very, very refined in terms of its size and your ability to locate it and control the depth and the amount of damage it does. And it's, so it's like a fine a fine instrument in terms of removing cancerous cells from the brain, which especially in paediatrics, as you say, with very small sites, that, that hopefully right. will add a, a new element to treatment here in Australia. And, and that's and that's the sort of the you know the really tricky thing about brain cancer. Unlike other solid cancers, like if you've got a tumor in your breast or other sorts of tissues, you can remove that tumor and take large margins. Like in the case mm. of breast cancer, you can remove the whole breast, um, but you can't do that in the brain. You can't go in and sort of say, "Well, I'm just going to take this huge chunk of brain here. Don't worry, you won't be able to walk or ever talk again, and yeah. you know you'll be severely disabled." But you know, you know, you you might last longer before the brain tumor grows back. That's not acceptable for our patients, yeah. and you know, and Certainly when we're thinking about kids, you can't talk about um, five-year survival rates to parents of a five-year-old. Yeah. You know, with brain cancer, yeah. we have to be going for cure, and I think that's sort of that's really what immunotherapy can provide. And you're right, and also working to get other drugs across the blood-brain barrier so that we can start to use these therapies synergistically and in combination with other approaches is going to be critical as well. As that's well, wild stuff. Now, Missy, I'm going to give you a 30-second break while I play a station announcement, um, and then when we come back, I'd like to talk about some of your work with Indigenous communities. Terrific. Sounds good. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. And we're back. It was a very short break. I warned you. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've been doing, uh, I mean, part of your, your um, uh, King's birthday, they've got to get that right, don't they? Uh, King's birthday honour um, was the work you've done with Indigenous communities. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so my mum's of Gundijamara uh, descent, and uh, so I've always been involved in the Indigenous community uh, my whole my whole life. Obviously, my with my family, and so you know, I guess going through my academic pathway, it was quite clear to me that uh, you know, first of all, racism was rampant, alive and well, and lots of Indigenous kids were sort of being told in their classrooms by teachers that actually 
you know, uh, why don't you go and do hairdressing because, you know, mm. engineering isn't for you or whatever. So uh, uh, really tackling that. And then as I went through, re- recognising as well that we'd never had, um, you know, a lot of Indigenous students hadn't uh, been applying to Oxford and Cambridge universities. There'd never been an ap- Indigenous applicant for the Rhodes Scholarship, for example, ever, not one, wow. despite being... Fa- so there was there was, an issue, there was an issue there. And I think it was a... Um, we needed to develop new programs. So that was a large piece of work that I worked on with the Aurora Foundation was helping co-establish um, scholarships for Indigenous scholars to, to travel and do postgraduate studies and also programs for high school level students to take them through and mentor them through right. to the, being university ready. So that was a la- one large piece of work. And, uh, and then the second thing that I'm really passionate about is uh, Indigenous um, genetics. And this was at a time when, back in actually the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was a scientist in Canberra uh, at ANU called Bob Kirk that collected a lot of Indigenous uh, blood samples, in fact 11,000, it's Australia's most substantial collection. And it's sitting in liquid nitrogen in, in Canberra. And, um, and when the new uh, custodian of that collection, Professor Simon Steele, um, inherited that collection, he put a voluntary moratorium on research. So he shut down research and he said, I'm not sure about the ethics of using these samples. Let's go and have a, let's go and have a look at where these came from and go and talk to community and see whether, um, you know, they are supportive of using these samples for research. And so that's what we did. So it was a small group of uh, Indigenous um, leaders from across Australia that were uh, asked to come and sort of oversee this. And so through that, the centre, the National Centre for Indigenous Genomics was born. Right. And uh, that's involved uh, the last decade of uh, really deep community engagement and setting up Indigenous governance um, to oversee uh, the use of these samples. Yeah. And do you still, uh, I want to hear a yes here, but do you still go out to a lot of regional schools and, and talk about your career and so forth and preference that over, I suppose, inner city schools and, you know, try and give, give back to, to get that message out there that, you know, that you know so well? Oh, look, definitely. I think, you know, providing role models for, for all kids is important, whether they be city kids or rural kids. And in fact, there's a lot, there's, you know, just as many Aboriginal kids living in Melbourne as there is in rural Australia. And I think mm. sometimes we forget that. There's this stereotype that if you're yeah. an Aboriginal student that you're, some, that you're always rural and always regional. And it's not, that's not the case. So they are, you know, mob everywhere. So shout out to all the mob out there if you're listening. And... Um, you know, I think it's just a matter of showing role model and showing real, real pathways. You know, for for students into whatever they want to do. You mm. know, in, in STEM or beyond. Yeah, and moving on from that, your gender equity work has also been pretty, you know, extensive. And and this is something that I suppose I want to ask you: that, Do you feel it's getting better? I mean, I hope I hope it is a bit, but there's still a lot to do, isn't there? Yeah, look, I wish I had a more positive answer. Look, we have come a long way, Dr Shane. I think, you know, over the last, certainly over the last 10 and even five years, I've seen dramatic improvements, you know, certainly with our institutions taking diversity and inclusion and gender equity seriously. We've seen improvements to the proportion of women in leadership in STEM, but there's still a dearth of women in senior mm. positions. We don't have a pipeline issue. We've got just as many. In fact, we have a higher percentage of female biolog- graduates from yep. the biological PhDs, um, but yet we still have, uh, you know, inequity in, in leadership. The main reasons why the dial still isn't shifting fast enough are actually mainly cultural, and that cultural beast is a pretty tough nut to crack because we're talking here about unconscious bias. Um, we're talking about... Um, you know everything that sits un- under that, and so that's that. That takes a lot of 
it takes a lot of work. So we've yeah. got good policies and procedures and, and structures in place now, I think, across our organisations, but there's still that cultural piece. And, for example, um, Dr Shane, even last month, a fantastic conference I wanted to go to in my field, the Scientific Steering Committee consisted of nine men. Yeah. So we're in I, 2023 I that, and yeah. still... And still. Yeah. So, no, we still have a long way to go. It's interesting that because I think I really put on the men involved there to, to step up. So I was judging a particular competition last week and I found out the day before who the other judges were on the day and it was two other men. And I thought, shit, I'm not happy with that. So I emailed the organiser and I said, look, um, I'm happy to provide some alternatives to me. And he, to be to be fair, and, you know, I take my hat off to him, he said, well, actually, there were four days of judging, and over the four days, um, there were four out of 14 that were men. And I said, okay, that's, that is, it's not ideal that it's on the one day that there are all men, but you've managed to get 10 out of 14 of the judges to be women. I will give you a pass on this one. Yeah. But but I believe it's, it's you know, my role and any other man involved there's role to speak up and say, I don't want to be on one of these panels that are, that are all men. And I, I've done this a few times now, and most of the time when it's happened, the organisers have said, oh, you're right. And I've said, just take me off. I don't care. I, I don't need to be part of it. I would rather suggest someone else that I know that's excellent um, that can take my place. And they've, they've been happy to do that. But it's important to... To actually stand up and and make that choice. And that's a really good example, Shane, of how you can, as a man, make a stand. And but, Misty, what do you think, as a female, how can we move the dial on that when we see organising committees that are just men? How can we insert ourselves into that picture? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's no easy answer other than you know networking, writing, you know, writing to these organisers and pointing, continue, continuously pointing it out. Um, and then sometimes it's as, also just as simple as. Um, being aware of you might go to a, a seminar and someone gives a great talk and all the hands from the audience go up to ask questions and who does the microphone inevitably mm. get passed to first the senior male in the audience so it's simple as being aware of it and so that we can make sure that all of our young fabulous PhD female PhD students are getting those opportunities and that we're um, we're pointing them out when we see them so it's it's exactly as you say Shane so you know saying actually asking the question even in advance you know I, I didn't ask a question last year when I went to a meeting and mm. 15% of the invited speakers were female now if I'd known that in advance, I actually would have. I would not have gone and presented at the meeting. Yeah. Um, so we need to be asking the questions in advance, and we need to be providing the feedback. Yeah. And and look, it's it's sometimes extra hard work. I remember the first ever large University of Melbourne um, event I organised for the Vice Chancellor, Glenn Davis, who now works mm-hmm. for the PM. Um, I went in with a speaker list that we had, and there was about thirty five speakers in total or something for this event, and the the it was about 60 40 mm-hmm. and he, he looked at me and he said Shane that's not good enough mm-hmm. and I was like oh, oh, uh, okay <laughs> I got a lot of work here um, but I did it and and then we had a really good ratio at that event and everyone after that you know I learned I learned that lesson it was not a hard lesson to learn that it just took some extra work for me to make sure the right thing was done because the easy go-tos were everywhere but they were everywhere because they'd always been the easy go-tos and and, and they'd always been promoted and it always made things really easy and we didn't need to do that so you know i I don't do that anymore and i think it's 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 not that hard to fix this it really isn't and we're we're just talking about men and women women here there's a whole other diversity as well we haven't even got to intersection yet so you know talk about women of color not being represented as well which is it yeah yeah it's a big it's a big it's a big mess and and we all need to up and do more to, to kind of sort that out but there's there's a lot we can we can do 
Anyway, we're almost out of time, Misty. So thank you so much for coming in and chatting to us today. It's been great hearing more about your story and, and about your work. And, and I have to say on behalf you know, of everyone, congratulations on this incredible award that you've thank got. You. Well-deserved. And hopefully a lot of good stuff um, coming up in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Shane. And, um, and it's nice to see Sarah Best here from the Brain Cancer Centre. <laughs> now, folks, uh, that was Associate Professor Misty Jenkins. We'll get the dirt from Sarah next week when you're not here. Uh, from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. And uh, they are going to be broadcasting over there. I can see Matt Stedman is ready to go in Studio One. Cam is back. He was back last week too, which is very exciting. We missed him here at Triple R when he was away. Wasn't the same. Sarah Best, great to have you back. Good to be here. And Dr. Ailey, great to have you in the studio as well. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Folks, uh, you've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of RRR's Einstein the Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on RRR from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.